Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard and this is me old muck of Fenners. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This week's jingle is brought to you by Mark Twain. Not Mark Twain, he's been dead a long time. Wrote some magnificent books, not as far as I'm aware, any jingles. He may have done, they might not just have recorded in that era or survived the intervening period. Anyway, Mark Twain, thanks for helping grow the show. Also, thanks for giving me the week off. From zoos to tattoos. Out of space, you learn what they do, and they will entertain you. Well, it's the Joe Muller Show. Yeah, it's the Joe Muller Show. That jingle was wonderful. I am Joe Muller. This is Tom Fordyce. And Joe, today we're going to be joined by someone that you know pretty well. It is the very interesting sports psychologist slash mind guru. Jeremy Snape. That is excellent, and I'm looking forward to it. But have you seen some of these reviews of the pod that have appeared on some podcast apps? Have you seen this one? It says, we should all hug the Joe way. Now, your hugs are special. We can't hug all our listeners, although probably there aren't that many, so it wouldn't take that long if we could. Can we do a little audio hug again, just for people listening at home might need a little TLC? Let's hug virtually. Ready? Yep. So... I'm now beginning to place my arms around your body and I will intertwine my fingers on your back. They are intertwined. I am now going to request that you take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And then release. And on that release, we just squeeze that little bit tighter and embrace that little bit warmer. And some might fart. 
But that's okay. But that's absolutely fine. And then we release. And it's over. God, I feel relaxed. Stop the nonsense. Shall we get our guest in? I'm so relaxed I might lie down. Get Jeremy in. Stop with that voice. Sorry. (sighs) Our guest today is a sports psychologist who has worked with elite athletes and me. Hello, Jeremy Snape. Hello. When did we work? We first worked Yeah, 2016, was it? I'm trying to forget about it, but yeah, it was Brilliant. a few years ago, yeah. And uh, you were tasked with helping me with my red mist moments oh. on the field. And that was in 2016. It's been none since then. I can't think of any <laughs> high-profile red mist. I'm just surprised you limited them to moments, to be honest. <laughs> Discrete episodes, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for actually agreeing to come on, even <laughs> even though we fucked up the first time. For those of you who don't know, Jeremy was actually a really good cricketer. You played for England, Jeremy, and it was those slightly weird experiences for England which have led you to doing your job now, haven't they? If I'm being honest, I, I was thrilled and, and I'm so proud that I played for England, but I didn't back myself in some of those really tight situations. I remember I got man of the match on my debut, um, but then I got a chance to play on the tour in India. And uh, the first game was in Eden Gardens, Calcutta, 120,000 people. My fascination with psychology started there because I ran out Freddie Flintoff because I got a slightly tighter turning circle back in the day. <laughs> and uh, And then I was just left in the middle of this pitch on my own, just hearing... Not only 120,000 people, not only hearing the world's media, uh, but the loudest voice was actually the one in my head, which was saying, you're shit, you're not good enough to be here, you shouldn't have done that, you know, it's all on you now. And then somehow I played the most ridiculous blind slog shot that, you know, is just so out of character and walked back to the pavilion getting pelted with onion barges by the local school kids thinking, who played that shot? You know, what was that? And it was just this moment of madness and sort of emotional hijack that I sort of reflected on. And everyone would say, oh, yeah, that looked as if it spun a little bit off the pitch. Or there's all bullshit that goes around it. But deep down, I knew that I'd just completely collapsed under pressure. And I I became fascinated at that point, really, to try and understand what is it that the best players and best sports stars and best business people in the world are doing to be able to not only be good enough to perform, but actually deliver under pressure to sort of relax and let the skills come through. So that's how it all started. I remember you using the words, I was a bit of a coward. I I would hide. I would succumb to all the pressure. And I was like, what? You played for England. You played at the top level. And you're now trying to convince me to listen to you to help me in my game by telling me that you... You were a coward, you hide and you completely ballsed it up thing. And I was like, I don't know how well this is going to go. And it was quite a a powerful insight because I was like, hang on, that's how I feel at times during my moments at the top level of like, I don't feel good enough to be here. I don't think, but I'd never actually considered it anything more than just an emotion that I couldn't control. When I'd started to work with athletes and and business leaders or whatever, I wanted to tell the honest story, which is actually, this is bloody hard. You know, if you want to get to be the top one or 2% in the world, whatever it is, you can't expect to be a robot and this sort of machine that's just going to be completely forensic about everything. You you know, when you go over the white line, you take your humanity with you, your emotions, your relationships, your self-doubt. And I guess the people I've got most respect for are the ones that are able to do it in spite of the fear and sort of transcend all those insecurities, but actually still perform. And and quite simply, the days I regret in my career are the ones when I didn't really go for it. 
I know it in myself and that's the bit that I think everyone's got inside them and that's the bit I'm passionate about trying to help people with because I think that's what winning is you know your biggest opponent is in your head and I think if you can win that battle you're halfway there you come across quite self-deprecating about your career do you actually believe that that you weren't particularly good at that level that you Mm. didn't deserve to be there or is that an easy way and I, I speak from personal experience of it's easier for me to say I'm shit at that I'm not very good at that because then I when I am shit at it I said, well, I told you I was shit. It's easier for me to say I'm not very good than listen to someone else tell me I'm not very good. Maybe maybe it is a protection mechanism. I mean, for me, I wasn't the guy that walked in, you know, and the game was done. I wasn't the guy that as soon as they saw me on the team sheet, they feared for their lives. You know, that was not me. So let's be really honest. If you're looking at, you know, Murray and Warren Snape, that, that, sentence, <laughs> that sentence does I not like read Mal- well. I like Malinga. <laughs> Is he still playing? Slinger Malinga. Was he illegal? His arm's very low, isn't it? But Malinga was brilliant. I had a chance to work with Sri Lanka in the World Cup and he used to practice by putting a pair of old trainers down on the batting crease and he'd run up for like half an hour and just smoke these pair of Reeboks oh. or whatever and he was imagining and visualising that he was hitting some bloke on the big toe and he was winning the World Cup and actually he did. That sounds um, so, so like it's pretty childlike yeah. and basic yeah. and yet makes so much sense. Yeah, but that's the under pressure that was the go-to ball the in-swing in Yorker and if he knew he'd got that sort of in his muscle memory and it was ready to go you know all he got to do is superimpose a new pair of shiny shoes that Virat Kohli was wearing and and go for it (laughs) I love that now I don't want to make the whole thing because I know we're going to get on to a bit more relating it to real world stuff and business side of things as well because that's what you've gone into now but I'd still like to stay on the sports psychology a bit for a minute and how it was always considered when I first started out that it was a bit of a fad. It was taken seriously, but not. It was He was there if you wanted to go and speak to him, but no one really did. The sort of old school guys coming through. Sorry, Joe, I just yeah, poured myself fucking a Fucking laugh, mate. I'm trying really hard to be professional here. You fucking just... It's quite noisy. Look, bo- get a non-noisy bottle, please. Look. Sorry, next week, carry on. He was there, but the old school sort of era was like, what do you want to talk to a sports psychology for? Like... Well, they're going to teach you, mate. No, you need to learn how to scrummage. You need to learn how to lift. You need to learn how to tackle. You don't need to talk about your mind or anything like that. That's complete bollocks. And yet now, it's not a fad. Athletes are looking for that extra edge in everything that they do. We seem to be maximising everything physically and tactically and technically with all the different things. But it's the sports psychology part of it that I find that athletes are really finding really most powerful now to make them perform week in, week out. 100%. There was a decade of fitness where everyone looked for the advantage in fitness. Then I think there came a a decade of technology, analysis, analytics, even scouting using different analytics and, and pro zone and things like that came into sport. But of course, the last thing you can measure is what's going on in somebody's head. And that's why it still hasn't really come to the fore so I think the next frontier in sport without a doubt and performance more generally is the mental one and there's absolutely no doubt about that because if you ask top performers what the biggest difference between their best and worst day is which could be two days apart it's their mindset it's not their strategy it's not their technique it's not their physicality the last competitive advantage for me is mindset without a doubt you know, why did I spend 95% of my time throwing balls around and whacking balls when the, the 80% differentiator in my cricket was in my head? It's madness, but we just don't know how to do it. And it's not accessible. It's not spoken in plain English. And it has to change. It's as simple as that. 
I've often wondered, Joe, like, watching from the outside, you elite sportsman, and I know you did that funny thing in the intro where you pretended you weren't elite, but forget that, you are elite. <laughs> I did what Jerry does. <laughs> you did, you did, exactly, right, which okay. maybe is one of the reasons, one of the ways that you cope with the pressure. But a few years ago, maybe like three years ago, I had this idea in, in my old job at the BBC that I wanted to get into the head of a place kicker in rugby. Like what it's like when you're bending down over a kicking tee at Twickenham, 80,000 people in the stadium, millions watching at home. So I had two conversations. I had one with Charlie Hodgson when he's at Sarries. And I said, is that the loneliest place in the world at that point? And he went, yeah, it is. And he says, yeah, you do start thinking about, oh, my parents are watching this and it's all on me. And it was really quite heartrending. And then about two hours later, I asked the same question of Owen Farrell. Is that the loneliest place in the world? He looked at me like I was mad and he went, no, I just kick him ball. <laughs> and I wondered if that was in some ways the secret or one of the secrets to, to Owen, who obviously you know so well from England duty. One of the reasons he is so good is that he's not overthinking it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's just playing that a little bit cooler than he actually is, mate. I'm with Joe on that. I think that Owen is much more sophisticated in his approach than that. You just can't be as consistent as that by just thinking nothing. And I think that's one of the misconceptions around sports psychology. You know, coaches just say, oh, just clear your mind. Just clear your mind. <laughs> and it's absolute bollocks because if somebody had said to me in that night in India with 120,000 people and the negative voice of Satan in my head, you know, clear your mind, I would have just punched them probably. You know, what you have to do, I almost think of your brain being like a, a sort of a dustbin and, and it works best when it's empty. So if you imagine then the dustbin is starting to fill up with, you know, loads of shit, basically, and that's the pressure, that's the expectation, that's the scoreboard, that's the critic in the press, that's the fear of getting hurt, that's the shame of, you know, missing the kick, the consequence of failure, all that shit flies into the bucket and now it's rattling around in your head and you can't stop that. So where sports psychologists work is they try and create a lid for the bucket. We try and give such a structured set of mannerisms leading into that instinctive kick that the player knows that they can dial down the volume of all that external distraction and dial up their internal processes that they focus on to deliver a good kick. So you have to let go of the, the sort of consequence of failure and dial everything up to say, OK, when I place the ball in this position point and they, they would have this to the millimetre, how they position the ball, their, their walk back as they walk back to kick is millimetre precise. They know exactly what they're doing. The visualisation that they might see the ball going through the path and sort of hitting a lady in the middle of the stand at the back. It doesn't actually get that far, but they visualise that perfect trajectory. And then they've got those deep breaths that they're doing both physiologically to relax their muscles because that's how they learnt the skill in a relaxed state, not tense. So they need to get back closer to that so that the muscles are the same length and, and they feel the same. But also to just calm the mind because when we focus on our breathing, that helps to shut down some of that chatter. So you can't think nothing, basically. So you think something that's useful. So you use these blockers like counting their feet. One, two, three, set, deep breath. Look at the middle of the posts. Okay, hip right through. Are you ready? Yes. Big breath in, lean forward, and then you switch off. So as soon as you as soon as you get into that mode, you've gone. You've let go of it and you're playing instinctively. But to, you know, when when you hear something like Federer, the, the commentator say, Oh, he's gone off into his own world. They've gone off into their world of controlling the process. They don't worry about the outcome. They're dialed up the process so much that they're ready to play instinctively. So that's that's the battle that, that really goes on. And 
And, you know, we're not trying to give people more to think about. We're actually trying to help them to switch off so that they can relax and let their skill come through. I don't want to be all high and mighty and smug about this, Tom, but I told you so. <laughs> it doesn't just kick ball. Let, kick let's ball. go to the other end of the spectrum, because the stuff we spoke about was more about, um, you know, pressure. So what I found really interesting working across different sports cricket i did a lot of work with batsmen about facing brett lee and the fastest bowlers in the world you're trying to calm people down so this sort of zen-like instinctive breathing techniques and that kind of stuff was really really useful for them to be able to play instinctively but then you've got old joe marler there who you know before they even get there old bit, you do look older old, than you yeah. are don't you excellent yeah, yeah. yeah. stick with the so, story so they're, they're le- and this is the thing that amazed me i'd never worked in rugby when i got a chance to work with england and um you know what amazed me was the intensity that these ha- guys had to get to physically i mean the training that the england rugby boys did before the game you know in that week i've never seen anything like it genuinely so i had to try and work out where I could be of use because getting Joe to do some Zen like breathing and visualization before he takes on, you know, the scrum probably wouldn't have worked. So you let's, got it. Let's, let's say I was a bit yeah. of a skeptic. But I think that that emotional control, so things you might do with, with rugby, obviously, when you start to lose your head, I mean, the Kerry Evans, the clinical psychiatrist that worked with the All Blacks, had this model of redhead and bluehead where redhead was future focused, emotional. You've basically lost the plot and you're looking at your opposite number wanting to punch his lights out. Just looking at you, Joe. Um, and Bluehead is, um, you know, where you're calm, rational, clinical and sort of thinking about what you're doing right now. So that one way to calm that down is to focus on the ball. You know, where's the ball, not where's the man? Joe's laughing here. I'm he, laughing because he I've this. actually got my notes, my note sheet that we made together and had printed out. And that, on, is, that is one of them. Yeah. Focusing on the ball, not the man. Because that's what I tend to do is that if so, like my ego, if I get smacked in a tackle or if someone sidesets me or whatever, I then go, I take that personally of like, no, fuck that. I'm going to go after this guy and I'm going to yeah. get one up on him. <laughs> that was one of my focus points is focus on the ball, not the bloke that's just made you look silly because it's not about you. It's about the team and you pissing off and doing your own thing isn't helping the team. So that was one of my big focus points. And, and the other thing is these sort of fast reframing moments where we sort of talked about, okay, I've just done a tackle. What's the next job? Just gone into a, a, a mall or whatever. I've got the ball. Okay, what's the next job? And you sort of, you're trying to break it down so you don't get into this continuous red mist mode where everything's building to a crescendo before you lamp somebody. You're almost trying to segment it into different 20 second sequences if you know what I mean so so using your positioning on the pitch or something physically like a cue about stamping on the floor rather than somebody's head one of my favorite one and they, to be fair this one did actually has stuck with me since we worked together was um when they lose their focus I win we spoke about having a a mini game within the game which is my favorite thing to do so my favorite thing to do in life Aside from obviously spending time with you, Tom, and Thanks, Thanks, creating this podcast and making it as fascinating and as interesting as possible, is to wind people up. You surprised me, John. <laughs> so, I, you know, I like, oh, one nil, thank you. Oh, two nil, thank you. Oh, got reaction out of you, that sort of thing. So we created a bit of a mini game within the game of if I could get to the point of winding an opposition player up legally and making them lose their focus... That's a little point for me. And that also, that that actually helped me maintain my focus within the game. Believe it or not, I know that sounds quite strange, but it would be like, oh, okay, that's how I'm I'm controlling the red miss moments by, 
oh, just one nil, thank you, and then move on to the ball, move on to my next job, move on, to, and it, that would help me stay involved and focused in the game. So that was that was the other thing on there. Let's say I'm your opposite number in the scrum. Mm. and you've decided for some weird reason that you can't just smash me backwards, Mm. how are you trying to get in my head? I may or may not resort to some sort of song or, um, you know, like toilet attendants sometimes ask you to wash your hands. You know, when they go, oh, no spray, no lay, and you're like, okay, I'll wash my hands, thanks. I mean, I've I've been married for the last five years and I haven't been to a, a nightclub for at least 10 years so this story is kind of irrelevant but that's what I meant like I'd use to wind them up different techniques maybe weird them out as opposed to just trying to punch them in the face because that's going to just let the team down and I'll be straight off the field again He's got a lot of creative energy uh, (laughs) so so I think what we needed to do was channel that One of of the biggest focuses I also needed help with was realising that it wasn't about me Running on that pitch and doing my job wasn't not just for my own benefit or satisfaction. I had a job to do, and we spoke about a series of jobs, like you said, focus on that, focus on that, in order to make the team better. And if I wasn't doing those jobs and I was doing something else, then I'm letting my teammates down. And that sort of feel of guilt that I'd have when I did let them down, I had to try and change to be like, no, I, I do want to support the team and I do want to be part of this team. And in order to do that, I need to do these jobs and stop fucking punching people. So, um, I'm yeah. getting there. No, no, that's, that's right. And, and you know, without getting too philosophical, I think what pressure does, it makes you think really short term and it makes you think about survival. So the fear makes you react in a certain way to protect your self-esteem in the short term. But, you know, the best players have got that incredible accountability to absolutely nail their own job but they're also selfless. They're actually not looking at themselves to protect their own ego. They're actually looking at the work they can do to support their mates. And I think that that's just a bit of reframing, really, to sort of say, did you realise that's where the best players in the world are playing? And and it's an easy trap, and we all do it. And, and um, you know, I think that's just one of the consequences of pressure. We, we start thinking about ourselves and survival mode, really. It's one of the things that you do in the scrum to get in the head of your opposite number is sing Adele songs... On occasion, I've been known to, to sing either Adele or some Tina Turner or the toilet attendant songs that they do, and usually up against a young pup, a young prop that's up and coming, and you know they're frothing at the mouth to go after me because oh he's the older guy he's you know he's the guy that's been this fake tough guy setting the tone all in the scrums let's take a pop at him like rewind 10 years when I was thinking that about the likes of Julian White Andrew Sheridan or when I was trying to run around the pitch winding them up because I was like a giddy little kid like oh yeah I'd love to get a punch from one of them or <laughs> let me get punched by this, these sort of guys but because things have changed and you can't just whack a, a young pup or put them in their place or I'd go for trying to weird them out now and they'll be frothing at the mouth and then I'll start singing to them and they're like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I enjoy the mind game side of it and to see an opposition player get a little bit weirded out by trying something different on them and puts them off their game, I'm like, well, there you go, there's one nil, two nil, thank you. Well, seeing that we need to go to an ad break, could you take us to the ad break as if the listener to this podcast was in a scrum opposite you? Uh that you Crouch. No spray, no lay. Pardon? What did you say? <laughs> Nothing, mate. Bind. Uh that you said oh you what are you singing to me? Nope, don't know what you're talking about. Set Here are the ads. Well it's a quiz. 
but this time it's a podcast. Yes! With me, Mikita Oliver. I was going to go with that at first, you know, I really was. I love a quiz. I'm nervous. Oh! How many edges does a 20p have? Uh. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, I'm doing so badly. We will quiz, we will chat, and then we will repeat forever. Just search Quiz Chat Repeat in your podcast app. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favorite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behavior creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. Joe, it's time for the second half of the show. Should we talk to Jeremy again? Yes. I was just going to say, while you're singing, I once asked the great Glenn McGrath, if you were running into bowl on the last ball of a World Cup final, the the opposition need three to win or two to win. Talk me through it. And he said, well, I'd go back to the end of my mark. I'd already have my plan about what I was going to bowl. It's probably going to be an in-swing in Yorker. Um, I'd squeeze the ball to make sure I'm completely, you know, set up. And then as soon as I've made that plan and I've got 100% commitment in my head... I start singing a song. Wow. See, there are, there's method in the madness, Tom. <laughs> I liked it, Joe. I, I like it a lot. That's an insight into that. Now, obviously, this year has been pretty shit. COVID has wrecked a lot of things. It's been a year of the Zoom call, Jeremy. Let's say someone listened to this, hates Zoom calls. There's going to be 100 people from their office on a Zoom call. They've got to give a bit of chat and they are bricking it. You put them on the fucking spot there, haven't you? When, oh, when yeah. you say they've got to do it, they actually do have to do it. They've got to give a speech Ooh. to the office on Zoom. That's the scenario. Wow. Scenario number one. That's punchy. Okay. okay. Well, um, with all speeches, you're looking to think about what do I want the recipient to think, feel and do differently? That's a little framework for you. So, so you're trying to understand your audience. You're trying to understand their mindset and where they need to get to from A to B. And your communication's got to fill the gap and help them go there. So you might want to blend a bit of stats and a bit of rational stuff about strategy or this is why I think this. But you might also want to tell a story. So we connect really well to personal stories. So if we've got a balance of sales figures or whatever it might be and a story from one of our clients, that's the perfect balance to get the the left and right brain working, if you like. And, and most people on the call will get that. Keep it short. Keep it sweet and get out of there quickly. 
get back into your pajamas. So you recommending they do it with clothes on as well? I would say so. Yeah. It's pretty... What about what about half and half? Well, I think half and half's fine. But Cause... what you've got to do is just make sure your story doesn't need any vertical enactment. In your pants, bottom half, and suit top half. Yeah. So that you can feel comfortable. That you know they always talk about. Just pitch yourself up in front of the group, and everyone's in their pants. But what I'm saying is you've got to have an incredibly controlled environment because if the doorbell goes and you spring up, you've lost it. What about procrastination? Now, I've spoken to a couple of friends of mine, one of which has gone from working in an office four or five times a week to everything from home in his spare room. Doesn't leave the house because he's doing meetings, Zooms, all this left, right and centre. But he finds himself always like, oh, how are you, mate? Or looking at Twitter or looking at Instagram in between calls and then doing a lot but not doing much. Do you know what I mean? How can we give some advice to anyone that's listening that's struggling with procrastination? Yesterday, Jeremy, me and Joe chatting with Steve, the producer, for about 45 minutes. 42 of those minutes was so inconsequential I can't even remember what we spoke about. Because you two were pratting about. We were. What about you? I think, you know, you've got to be motivated, haven't you? And I think one of the challenges is if people are feeling disconnected from their teams, they're feeling disconnected from the sort of customers that they usually speak to, they feel like they're just doing a mechanical sort of procedure that's for somebody else. So I think you've got to try and reverse that, you know, recalibrating your day. So you maybe get up early and go for a run or get some exercise or something. Do something for yourself so you feel like... It's almost like you're 1-0 up before the day starts. And if your day's pretty boring, you know, you can sort of come off that high energy that you've created at the top of the day. So that's probably the first thing. And then I think it's just being realistic about what you've got to do and, and creating yourself a realistic rhythm. So it might be that you say, I'm going to absolutely smash this for 30 minutes, but it's so boring that I can't manage more than that. I think when we realise that we've got to do something for three hours, we, we stop doing it and we just fill the time with the pacifier or the comforter which is social media we grab that because it's just easier to do so one thing is you know stick the phone in the garage or something so you can't get to it and just you know identify right i'm going to hit this for 30 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it might be because usually when we've started things we carry on the hardest part is just starting so i think get your phone out the way give yourself half an hour and attack it i've read that four to five hours is the optimal time for creativity anything longer than that you're just working for the sake of working. And the way you describe that is don't just work harder for longer if things aren't quite working out for you. It depends on the task, to be honest. I mean, again, I've interviewed some really interesting people, neuroscientists, and they talk about this idea of offline processing, that we've got this traditional idea that we just stare at the screen and, and the idea will come. But actually, they talk about these eureka moments actually coming when we might be out on a bike ride or a run or a walk. You know, the dog walk is where these ideas spark. So I think what working from home has done is given us permission to change our working day. And whereas when we went into lockdown, people might have gone from leaving, you know, normally they'd leave home at, say, 6.30 or 7, have an hour's commute, get to the office, have an hour's commute on the way back, back home at, at 6 or 7. And then I think early on in lockdown, people just expanded the day out to work from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. When that's not sustainable. So I think people are realising now that it's okay to have an extended lunch break or go for a dog walk or whatever in the afternoon or even see friends. If you've got to get through some real grunt work, then you really do have to put a shift in without a doubt. But if it is creative work, if it is innovative work, then just doing more of it isn't necessarily going to produce the genius ideas. So, so making more effort to 
have rest. Yeah, and periods, also structuring right? your day. Yeah, I mean, it may be that you do the sort of heavy cognitive stuff in the morning. You know, for me, that my natural thing is not to be dealing with spreadsheets and numbers and that sort of analytic. I hate that. So I would have to do that first thing in the morning. For somebody else, it might be the opposite. So you've just got to work out what's most taxing to you, what gives you the most energy, and then sort of almost build your day proactively and your week proactively for that. But what happens generally is because we've got our motivation fades, we sort of leave the biggest, hardest task for Friday afternoon. And that's clearly not going to work. So so you've almost got to attack it on a Monday morning. Because the worst thing about leaving things and procrastinating is that you've got all the guilt that you know you're procrastinating before you do it. And then you're really resentful of the fact you have to do it. And then you're pissed off you left it till Friday afternoon. So you've got all that emotion being drained out of you. Whereas if you smashed it on the Monday morning and just said, well, I'm going to do it for an hour and get that done because it's a horrible job. You'd actually feel great for the rest of the week. So, you know, front loading the week with the tough stuff is good. Just just on motivation, there's a couple of things. Someone once said to me that motivation is an external factor. Someone else needs to motivate you. And inspiration comes from within. That's the one you should really be striving for, not relying upon someone else to tell you to do something, to motivate you to do it. I don't know. I mean, there's loads of phrases and quote cards and pictures and stuff. Inspiration means breathing fresh life into something. So it's got to come from somewhere. But when they talk in psychology around motivation, there's generally two fields. One is extrinsic motivation. So that's all the things that are outside of you. So that's things like rankings, uh, money, bonuses, praise from other people, they're external to you. And then there's intrinsic motivation, which is the things that are could be, um, you know, learning and development and growth that gives you great satisfaction to learn a new skill. Autonomy, freedom and choice, that's another one. If you feel like you've got more freedom, you're generally more motivated. And that could work in the business sense that if a boss gives you flexibility on how you organize your day you're going to be more motivated to do it than if you're in a straight jacket and micromanaged minute by minute so then another one which we'd all know is that sense of community that teamwork that bond that that we've got which again sadly has been compromised by everyone working at home so i know a lot of people don't particularly enjoy the company they don't particularly enjoy the job that they do but they love working with a group of people you know they have a social life with those people and and that's what takes them to work there's something, Jeremy, that, that me and Joe have been trying to work on, haven't we, Joe? Which is trust. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us a few tips of how we can build trust? I think we're doing all right, Joe. We were until you shafted me with your sister, didn't you? Yeah, point taken. What would help us build our trust? Mm, I think there's some psychologists made a trust equation, which I'm just trying to remember what it uh, what it had in it. It had credibility. So if you're good at what you do, uh, it had consistency. So if you're good at what you do and you do it regularly, then I'll trust you more. If you're good at what you do, you do it consistently and you're transparent and show some sort of vulnerability and show me as much as you possibly can, then those are really good things for building trust. So you're being honest, you're being consistent, you always show up on time and you're pretty good at what you do. So I'm beginning to trust you. But the thing that smashes all that out of the park under the equation, the denominator is self-interest. So if you're telling me something that's just to look after yourself, I don't trust you. So you can be good, consistent and tell me what you want. But if I think you're looking out for yourself, trust is gone. Having listened to your podcast, there was someone, I think it was a neuroscientist who was talking about um, the effects lack of sleep has. Now, I live about 70 miles away from 
the training ground at Quinn's. So that's 140 miles round trip every day or five times a week. And I'm a bit of a night owl. So I don't get to bed till about 11, half 11. And I'm up about five on the road before R5. Otherwise, the M25's a nightmare. So my, my average is about five or six hours. But you've spoken to a neuroscientist, haven't you, that the effects that lack of sleep and what cortisol actually physically does to the body and how detrimental to it is it? Can you just give us a little Yeah, bit? well, I think that's another area of huge advantage. Again, you know, we've, we've sort of... I always think that we're best looking back at our primitive world. You know, we, we went to sleep when it went dark around the campfire and that was it and, and you know, woke up feeling fresh and ready to go. But, you know, we, we're staying up later and later. We've got blue light on our phones and the addictive properties of social media I think late at night are dangerous um, you know there's a survey about the scary number of people wake up and the first thing they do is is go to the phones as well and and it's dangerous to do that I think uh, you know we've got the fight and flight system in our body but we've also got that rest and digest system and I think in a stressful environment we've got the fight and flight primed and, and an eight out of ten but probably our rest and digest is at two because that's massively important in terms of learnings, isn't it? Not j- both in the sporting world, but in business and every job that you have, that you do need to be put under that stress, but acute stress, small amounts of stress in order to yeah. improve and learn. But then you need to recover. You can't just be under stress constantly. Yeah. Otherwise, you're never going to learn. If, you, if you're not sleeping and you're not resting and recovering, you're not allowing your body to actually physically sure. make those learnings and especially during lockdown that period and even even now with a lot of people with local lockdowns and stuff like that they're staying up long hours into the night alcohol consumption's gone through the roof and then they feel shit the next day and then it's a vicious cycle they do it again mm. and again it's like well no wonder it's happening you you kind of need to get a little bit of control on that otherwise your body's just going to keep breaking down and i think because we measure ourselves by our impact in the workplace we don't consider the recovery phase but it's just the other side of the same coin. You know, it works like a a muscle, just the same. You can't keep blitzing a muscle all the time. Even you guys, you know, what impressed me with watching England rugby train was, you know, absolutely smashing it in the gym for an hour and then going and resting in your rooms, having a bit of a sleep and then coming back and doing a different kind of training session. So I think we've got to try and we, we do it physically, but we don't do it mentally and that hard, intensive work cognitively and then completely switching off with friends and family or doing some you know sport or something like that. That's that's the perfect balance to stay resilient for a long period of time. Of course, we might have a deadline and lots of businesses are struggling, lots of businesses are failing. So we might have to put a shift in until the end of the month or, you know, over a short term deadline. But to be resilient for a long time, you've got to be as focused on your recovery as you are on your workload. Who was the last person you roomed with on England duty? Joe Launchbury. Lovely man. Very nice man, Joe, isn't he? Lovely bloke. So is Joe, are you good for Joe's recovery, is what I'm saying? Or are you constantly going, Joe, why are you doing that? Yeah, I give you your space, chill out, let's have a little biscuit run in the evening, a little chill, catch up then. But during the day, we're sticking to our schedule. We've got built-in sleep, an hour and a half blocked out. And it says sleep. It says go and sleep we need you to sleep and the emphasis now like snapey's spoken about on recovery seems to now be so much bigger than it ever was before because the importance of needing to recover needing your body and your mind to recover from the learnings but also to then be able to go again as hard the next day is massive so um no i'm not jumping up and down on people rooming with me i'm providing the occasional healthy snack and a shoulder if you need to have a chat or quick little sap 
and uh, that's what I provide. This sounds very different, Jeremy. You talked about working with Shane Warne. Mm. So Shane Warne appears to relax by having cigarette breaks. Warney is a freak. He really is. He's <laughs> absolutely unbelievable. Warney thought the only time you should have a coach is to drive you to the, the stadium. Excellent. Um, so uh, I arrived in Rajasthan, you know, waiting to see this incredible uh, cricketer, the, the, the new supremo of Rajasthan cricket. And uh, we got chatting. He was definitely sussing me out over those first few days. What I didn't realise that Warney told me later was that he'd actually booked me a flight that he'd paid for personally to get the psycho babble out of the way because he was just having absolutely none of it. But I didn't know that at the time, otherwise it would have been a bit too much pressure. But yeah, let me stay. And uh, I worked with him for five or six years. So being in the next room to Shane Warne for, for six years in the Indian Premier League was an interesting sleep deprivation I think became part of the the routine but yeah what an incredible player and I learned so much from him what he does absolute genius I've got a question just back on the sports side of things I remember listening to a podcast you did with Stuart Broad and he always learned the most from his losses from his failures and we as sports people and business people and the, the crossover there we're always trying to win we're always trying to get the promotion we're always trying to get the project in on time it's always about right thingy and yet you speak to one of the top cricketers in the world and his biggest learnings are from his failures. But if we're always winning, how do you differentiate between learning when you win and learning when you lose? If we think about people who have a, a sort of a weaker mindset, they will tend to perform a particular skill. Let's say we're, we're um, taking a penalty in football. You know, you, you would miss that penalty. You'd be obviously catastrophizing it. And, and, and then after that, you would just interpret that I'm shit that's it, I'm done, that's me. It's more than just my football, it's me as a person, it's going to last forever and it's fixed, there's nothing I can do about it. So that's, if you imagine at one end of the spectrum, it's all of me, um, it lasts forever and there's nothing I can do about it, it's fixed. Then at the other end of the spectrum, the people who are most resilient, they process failures and mistakes in the opposite way. They would say, I missed that penalty because at 10 past three on that Saturday afternoon, I placed the ball down and as I walked back to the, the mark, I wasn't thinking straight. I hadn't picked my target. I hadn't committed to that top right corner. So that's why I missed it. So I can improve that and train from that and improve. So they see it as a specific skill at a specific time that can be improved. So I think just that that ability to frame setbacks. If you're going to be a high performer, you're going to you're going to fail a lot more than you're going to win, just by definition. But you've got to compartmentalize it to say I failed with that particular project or that speech that we were talking about earlier because I didn't prepare myself properly. I didn't consider the audience. I didn't get my tone right. So I'm not a failure. Full stop. I failed in that particular thing mm. and I will move forward. So that's that's a really powerful mental skill. I always struggle with that in my career that whenever I'd fail and fail hard, instead of learning from it, I'd ignore it, I'd hide it. I wouldn't watch the video back, I wouldn't think it, I'd just ignore it and pretend it never happened. Because I always saw it as oh God, someone's seen that or that I'll just ignore it and then move on. If I forget about it, I could just move forward rather than and that's why it always took me so long to learn things because I wasn't actually breaking them down or going back and going, Well, why? I think there's a time and a place for it. You don't want to be doing that when you're facing a fast bowler or, you know, about to take another penalty. So there was a story about Tiger Woods um, where he, you know, would have this black bag sort of theory that, that if he shanked a, a ball, not, not that he did very often, but he would always almost place that shot in this black bag 
that was next to him. And he was basically saying, that's my analysis bag. I'll deal with that later. But now I'm going to walk up the fairway. And when I get past that first tree, I'm going to stop swearing. And I'm now thinking about the next shot. So it's that acknowledgement that that didn't go well, but I'm actually going to park it for tonight, you know, and deal with it then rather than letting it contaminate the rest of my round, which is, again, it's another real mental skill. What were you like with the World Cup final then, Joe? In the eyes of some people, that is as big a failure. I know this sounds really weird because you get to the World Cup final, but I could see that haunting some people. So what have you done with that? Uh, yeah, I haven't watched it back and uh, haven't done any learnings from it at all, Tom. Serious? You've not watched it back? No, I you have watched it. I have watched it back. I've watched it back several times and struggled to put my finger on one thing to go. Because it, it never is one thing that goes, that's why we lost. It's a number of things. And uh, it was just one of those that on the day we cocked up a couple of things. And for us in particular our scrum didn't function very well and that had a trickle down effect on the rest of the game and that then means nerves creep in for the rest of the team that the backs that are involved they're like oh hang on we're on the back foot here and mistakes creep in more and more and it becomes a bit of a spiral and on top of that South Africa were in phenomenal form and they had some world-class players like Cheslin Colby he might as well have been head to toe in Vaseline <laughs> trying to get hold of him he was just phenomenal so and in the same way momentum starts from an event so it's those sort of chain reactions you know somebody spills the ball somebody has a knock on there's a missed tackle whatever it might be so in the same way you need everyone's mindset to stay with that belief that we can win from any position that that's the best mindset any team can have that no matter what happens we can win from this position because that's that sort of optimism and that accountability to do something next. And that's where you need any of the players. And anyone can be a leader at that point. It could be the youngest player, the least capped player. If a big tackle goes in, you build from that point and, and you need the momentum to shift the other way. But, you know, watching it on the day, it looked just an incredibly tough battle. So I was feeling for you, mate. Cheers, guys. Thanks for bringing that up again. You're not over it, are you? You, you say sometimes... Of course I'm not over it. I bought my son the Guinness Book of Records the other week and he's flicking it. He's, he's brilliant. He's a sponge. He takes everything in. He loves it. Loves learning. It always amazes me and comes out with this and he's telling me about the Great Fire of London the other night and got the date spot on. And I was like, and no, I'm not over it because he comes up to me with the book open on the sport bit and there's the whole South African team lifting the trophy, like cheering, cheering. And he's looking at me like that, like with a big smile on his face, like... Like a patronising nod as well. Like, <laughs> could have been you, Daddy, couldn't it? And I'm like, yes, son, thank you ever so much for that. Well, it's more useful than knowing when the Fire of London was, to be honest, mate. Tom? 1666 was the year. What date? April. Where? In the bakery on Pudding Lane. Very good. Was it April? Uh, 2nd of September, 1666, mm. in a bakery in Pudding Lane. Close. Very close, but you got it wrong. So well, out of all the years in history, I get the right year and I get the right location. I get penalised for not getting the month. It's quite an important part of the answer. So you got it wrong. Let's move on. Thank you. How are you going to get over the World Cup final? I am over it. I'm not over it. <laughs> <laughs> the sun will rise tomorrow, won't it? There's always something else. It is so hard to get over, but at the same time, the experience we had as a group of men was just incredible. And I look back on with the biggest amount of fondness and joy at, at what we did do. 
and how far we did come and how far we did go. And there'll always be the, yeah, but you didn't win. Yeah, I know I didn't win. Thank you very much. I'm fully aware <laughs> I didn't win, but I had a fucking brilliant time. And it would have been the, the icing on the cake for me. And that, that that's my personal opinion. There'll be other boys in the squad that'll be like, no, it was all about winning that World Cup. And of course, that was the end goal. But the experience we had, I, I, I'll always cherish. It was amazing. Deep breath. Clear your mind. Go in the dustbin. <laughs> Put the lid on it. Jeremy's got his own podcast. It's called Inside the Mind of Champions. Your website is the Sporting Edge. Sportingedge.com. So you've interviewed some amazing people. Who can you name any off the top of your head? Just Eddie Jones, Sir Dave Brailsford, Mo Farah. Big um, dogs. So Frank got... Lampard, neuroscientists, military leaders, even two guys that were in prison with Nelson Mandela for twenty six years. No. No way. Yes, so I interviewed two guys that were in prison with Nelson Mandela. They spent 26 years in prison. So Ahmed Katrada and Dennis Goldberg, so fascinating characters. Um, Ahmed Katrada didn't even need to go to prison, interestingly, but the lawyer said he could walk free, but instead he chose to go with the ANC, the eight, they called them, uh, the Rivonia eight that were all in the trial together because they thought the more that went into prison with Nelson Mandela, the more protected he would be. So he sacrificed the best part of his life. 26 to, yeah. years for his mate. Yeah. That is commitment. Yeah. And it's an incredible story of, of living in isolation and, and, you know, defiance really. And, and that shared purpose that they had to try and overthrow the apartheid regime. So in one of the podcast episodes, it's called Mandela to Mars, Lessons from Isolation. Um, and it talks about how they coped in that, you know, extreme isolation. I mean, we think we've had it bad with lockdown, but imagine being in Robin Island for that long. And, and one of the prisoners, actually, as they walked onto Robin Island, the concrete plinths had just been formed. And one of them wrote in the ANC will win 1967 or whatever it was. And actually, 20 odd years later, they the same prisoners were free and walked off Robin Island and saw that inscription in the uh, concrete it's an amazing amazing story what can people learn from them in terms of isolation then in the context of this year with covid and that well again you know we think we've done well having a few weeks in isolation but for those guys they had to build their own routines so part of it was structuring their day they tried to spend as much time as they possibly could together so even when nelson mandela was ill he still wanted to spend time, you know, with this community. They were out sort of breaking rocks. That was that was their job. And they chose to be together because they thought that was the best medicine rather than being in his cell, taking what the doctor had given him. But they stayed both resolute individually and they stayed resilient together as a team, which is just incredible. And also helping each other, you know, in, in moments when they were all experiencing personal stress and and challenging times you know they they were looking out for each other and just little things like you know somebody was in charge of wedding anniversaries or birthdays or christmas celebrations and just that sort of normality that they tried to bring celebration to such austere conditions i think is so inspirational for us but i think what did galvanize that team was that purpose and again you know when we get under pressure we think about ourselves and we think short term but for those guys on Robin Island, they were thinking selflessly about if they stayed together, what they could do to transform, you know, South Africa, overthrow the apartheid era. And by being resilient, by sticking together, they changed history. And that is so inspirational for all of us at the moment. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming in, mate. I honestly didn't think we'd see each other again, having failed you so many years ago. 
but thank you for giving us an insight into the performance mindset and the different tools that we can all benefit from especially in these sort of darker times um where a lot of procrastinating is taking place rather than some efficient working so i've thoroughly enjoyed myself what about you tom big time yeah thank you very much jeremy pleasure great to see you cheers jeremy Looking at your face, Joe, you enjoyed that one. I did enjoy it. Like I've said previously, when we go back to our psychopath episode, the mind is a big passion of mine at the minute. You know, sports psychology or how we can transfer the skills we learn in sport and business worlds into real life situations and positive mindsets. And I sound like a complete twat uh, saying that sort of stuff. Did you enjoy it, Tom? I did enjoy it. I also found myself looking at the size of his forearms. So you can pretty much tell with former sports people what sport they did by how they look now. So cricketers always have massive forearms because from batting, gives him massive forearms. He's got massive forearms. Yeah, love his forearms. Another podcast, Joe, if people like the mind, you like the mind. It's called The Mentor. It's Rick Lewis and Sideman. They're on a mission to end 2020 on a high. Rick is one of the best business minds in the country. He's taken three young people under his wing for the rest of the year. It's been a pretty shit year, hasn't it, for most of us, with access to £5,000 and Rick on speed dial, what could you achieve? This podcast, it'll be inspiring, but we're also going to learn a lot too. Search for The Mentor on your podcast app. I'm going to have a listen to that. Have a pop. I'll have a a pop. A listen, a pop, a go. No, if you have a pop, that's like you're you're going for someone. Well, don't fight him. No, I don't want to. I'll have a listen. I'll tune in. (laughs) <laughs> you love tuning into a podcast who have we got next week Joe? Tom we've got a very interesting guest next week always good who is it? we have got a chef a chef not just any chef it is Michelle Roux Michelle Roux with two Michelin stars indeed the greatest pastry chef of his generation is he? let's find out next week Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.